0: Super stoked to have Distro Kids sponsoring the podcast and can't thank them enough for their support of this thing. This episode of the podcast is also sponsored by Produce Row Cafe here in Portland, Oregon. This has become one of my favorite local hangs because they have free music every Wednesday night from 6 to 8 p.m. and Sunday afternoons, 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. They are located in inner southeast Portland and not only do they offer free music on their their large patio setup, but they've also got a killer brunch menu from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. on Saturdays and Sundays. The French toast and the breakfast sandwich are lights out. And I can't really do much alcohol personally, but I love their Virgin Bloody Marys. And they've got some other mocktails for folks like me as well. And they're always rotating in new seasonal cocktails. So come through and check out what they've got on deck for fall and winter down there. The patio is now nice, covered, and heated, and will be throughout the fall and winter. So come through, and big thanks to Produce Row for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. What is happening, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Dan Cable Presents podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the program. Once again, if this is your first time listening, thanks for checking out the show. You can find fresh episodes coming at you every Friday. And if you want to help support this thing in a free way, you can do so by clicking subscribe on iTunes, clicking write a review, giving the podcast five stars if you feel like it is deserving of so. And that will help propel this thing into the tops of those iTunes charts, which will give it more visibility on the national and international levels helping strangers find the podcast and just a great way to contribute to the growth and sustainability of this thing appreciate the hell out of all the folks that have already taken the time to do so if you're not listening on Apple just hit like follow subscribe wherever you are listening from tell a friend about the podcast if you are digging it and tap into the monthly Spotify playlist that I've been putting out every first of the month that Spotify profile will be in The episode notes, so you can uh, find that link there every first of the month. Dropping new playlists, so the March one is there now, pretty spread out genre wise, trying to keep it pretty wide and just a glimpse into what I'm listening to throughout the month. The March one features quite a few Portland locals and a bunch of stuff that I am excited to see at Tree Fort Music Festival in Boise at the end of the month. That is uh, creeping up really soon. Can't wait to get back out there. Just had Eric Gilbert, one of the founders of the festival, on just a a couple weeks back, if you want to learn more about what's going on with the Tree Fort Music Festival. But I am stoked to get into this one, episode 298. The Album Leaf, aka Jimmy Lavelle, is on the show. This was such a cool opportunity to get to chat with Jimmy for a while. I've known about the album Leaf probably for 20 years, so to get the opportunity to chat it up with him and, and get some insight on how his upbringing in San Diego really informed his early exposure to different kinds of music. Often I kind of think of environment influencing music being made just solely on the the visual surroundings of a place and and what that can offer. But it was cool to to kind of hear the, the flip side of that and how it was the bands and the artists around him that really had the big impact on the style of music he was making and leaning into this experimental world and just uh, the impact that that's had on the music that he's made over the years. So we talk about that and a lot more in this conversation, hoping I get the, the opportunity to chat with Jimmy again. We had a really good conversation and there's so much more that I would love to dive in with him about. I got to see my first album leave show here in Portland just a few days after talking with Jimmy and the thought put in to the aesthetic and the lighting that he talks about briefly in this conversation was very cool and definitely adds life to the show, especially when you know the creator of the, the tunes is the person kind of behind wanting to create those visual elements for the audience there. So the show was killer and, uh, it's impressive what he's able to get out of the sound, just playing as a two piece on this recent run of shows him in a, a drummer and yeah it, it just still sounded really big and very cool to see Jimmy kind of hopping around to these these different stations he has set up on stage and these lit platforms that each of them are on just really seems to to create a world for the uh for the live show there so if you're a fan of the album leaf make sure that you keep up with Jimmy those links will be in the episode notes in case there's any upcoming shows. I know this dude is working on a lot of music and he's got a lot backlogged that he's eager to share that we uh, we talk about briefly in this chat as well. But just a big thanks to this dude for giving me some of his time to chat in just another one of those episodes that's kind of a trip for me to uh, have the opportunity to chat with the album Leaf after knowing about this band for so long. So I was really excited about the opportunity when it when it came my way. We're going to get into the episode momentarily. If you are a Portland, Oregon local and you want to see some free live music here in Portland, you can check out Produce Row Cafe in Southeast Portland every Thursday night. They have got some live music going on on March 10th. This coming Thursday, Larissa Birdseye, singer-songwriter from Portland, Oregon, one of the first singer-songwriters that I met in this city when I moved here almost 10 years ago. Saw playing at an open mic, and very cool to see how her music has evolved over the the last years. But she will be down there playing a free set, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. every Thursday night at Produce Row Cafe, and every Sunday, Brunch tunes noon to two. There's DJs playing jams over there. So, uh, the links for Produce Row Cafe will be in the episode notes as well. So, you can uh, see what's going on over there. And the links for the other sponsors will be there as well North 45 and Distro Kid. Other than that, if you're new to the show and you dig what you hear, Definitely encourage you to go back, check out some previous episodes. Very cool to have back-to-back episodes with a a couple of dudes that have been playing music most of their lives and have made careers doing this and have started playing in bands, but now have shifted more into the the realm of doing a lot of work on film, as I had Brett Dieter from The Juliana Theory on last week, and uh, that's very much his path as well as as Jimmy's both of them still writing their own music for their own projects as well but it's rad to get to hear about how opportunities pop up over a course of a career especially if you you stick with something and i think this episode and last week's episode with Brett Dieter great examples of that and just very cool insight into that process so i hope that you are doing well out there, and I hope that you enjoy this chat with Jimmy Lavelle, aka The Album Leaf. We're going to get into episode 298 of this thing, and we're going to kick it off with a track called Within Dreams from the Album Leaf record, A Chorus of Storytellers. This is one of my favorite tracks that Jimmy has put out over the years, and that whole record is uh really great so definitely tap into that one if you're not familiar with it or you haven't revisited it in a while all those links will be in the episode notes so you can keep up with the album leaf appreciate y'all tuning in out there let's do the damn thing
1: might have a puppy interruption here no no worries puppy
0: interruptions are appreciated on (laughs) i I might have a puppy interruption (laughs) right okay (laughs) uh super stoked to talk to you though jimmy i was in high school i guess around the time that you were putting out some of your your first album leaf records i graduated 2003 so album leaf is definitely something that I knew about around that time and specifically my friend Ryan would always go to sleep with music on and I remember when he found the album leaf stuff he was like dude this is this is great nice. like this is nice. <laughs> this is the music for before bed you know and uh, so it was uh it's very cool to have the the opportunity to to chat with you and and dive into some of the records and what you're doing now with all the The film scoring, but uh, yeah, man, I know you're based in San Diego. Have you always lived there?
1: No, I actually live in L.A. and I've been here for 12 years. Oh, okay. Originally from San Diego, though?
0: Born and raised in San Diego, yeah. Okay. I grew up in Corona, California, so not too far down the road from San Diego.
1: There was a handful of hardcore bands that I was really into that were from Corona.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, did you feel like that that environment in San Diego or- environment in general has always uh, had a pretty big influence on on the music that you've made over the years
1: i mean i mean absolutely without without a doubt just because it's where i came up and where i was and who i like the the, the bands i went to see and my exposure to you know underground music was directly related to you know i mean in the '90s, obviously there wasn't an internet, there wasn't YouTube, there wasn't streaming, there wasn't anything but a record store and your local venues um, and your underground shows and just the community that you were a part of. So, so yeah, I mean, that definitely directly informed kind of where I was and how I was
0: shaped. Um, yeah. You know. And did you uh, did you get involved playing music from a pretty early age?
1: Yeah, I was playing in bands um, starting probably my freshman year in high school. Um, and I don't think it was until my maybe sophomore year or junior year that I actually felt like I did something that was like, not just like punk or, uh, you know, not, not that, that, that was like a little bit more, uh, intricate or. Trying to like <laughs> uh, a little more like a little more than like three three power chords, you know, and like a you know, like that kind yeah. of thing. Um so um yeah, I started to play I played in this band and I, cause I was in the school band, so I was a drummer in the school band. Um but I didn't necessarily play drum set, or there was always somebody that was just better than I was at that time. So I ended up playing like bass in my first band. I was a like I was in drums in the in in high school, but I was like more like center snare and just like drum captain and and you know like an, on like the on like the drum corps side of things, not necessarily full drum set. I just hadn't had enough like time with it. I'd never you know. Um, at any rate, like I ended up like playing bass for a really long time. Um, With a couple bands with, you know, that were kind of more like, definitely more like helmet, like Soundgarden, like influenced Nirvana, even, you know, Pennywise and like a lot of the skateboarding, like skateboarding scene. um, And like those skate videos back then, you know, Um, and uh, Epitaph, stuff like that, um, that I was influenced by or that uh, the bands were influenced by um, back in those days. And then like, I, I think I tr- started to play guitar. I like held bass strong for a couple of years, just playing only bass. Um, and then I started to play guitar in a, in a hardcore band called uh, Guyver One, um, upon like kind of meeting this certain crew of, of, I mean, kids, we were kids, you know, we were teenagers, so. And that was kind of when I, I was exposed to something that was possibilities that were bigger and broader. You know, like, it wasn't just, like, playing my friend's living room when his parents were out of town or something like that, you know. Um, So at that point, I started to actually, like, play venues and go out of town, play in L.A., play in Santa Barbara, play, you know, in Phoenix and stuff like that. Um, So that was kind of like, and I was 16, um, or no, 17 at that time. Um, And then I did my first tour, my spring break of of my... my senior year of high school is 1996 we went out to michigan um there was this big hardcore fest called michigan fest um out in hamtramck michigan as you know in suburb of detroit um and basically my parents yeah let, let me hop in a van that had one bench seat and a loft with eight with seven other kids so we were just like three people on the loft at all times three people on the bench and then like one person sitting you know it was just it was jam-packed the entire time and drove all the way out to Michigan and back from San Diego um and that like really peeled back a lot of layers um and exposed a lot you know of just like the community um but I mean, really though, directly influencing by San Diego, there was bands that I that I grew up going to see, like Drive Like Jehu, like really changed my my view of music. There's a video of me actually on the, on, on on YouTube of a Drive Like Jehu show at the World Beat Center. And I'm front row and center, you know, with bleach blonde bleach blonde shaved head. <laughs> um, it's like 1995, I think it is. Um, it's when Yank Crime came out and. They were like my all-time favorite bands, favorite San Diego band. And then there was a huge San Diego scene, um, like Three Mile Pilot and um, like bands like A Miniature and um, Drip Tank and Chinchilla and uh, Tanner, um, Radio Wind. There's just all these like local bands um, that were really supported back then, especially by record stores um, and like local... um, festivals like the the you know tim mays who um books the casbah and is responsible is basically kind of like the you know it's a staple promoter of san diego um used to throw these big like festivals and these big shows and they were all these san diego bands um so it was like a showcase all the time and as a you know as someone growing up without the internet without you know any kind of exposure beside just straight up shows um it was pretty pretty cool to be a part of and there was everything was different you know it's like it was the sound was so far and wide and nobody sounded the same you know so was really cool
0: yeah were you are you pretty appreciative that you kind of uh have grown up in the time that you did as far as maybe not just you know the internet and being able to find music or be people be able to find your music but you you were uh definitely came up in what was still like pretty analog age before all of the software started getting (laughs) wild so you kind of I feel like you have it on both ends of of, you know how you've produced music and made music over the years yeah for sure I mean I I'm definitely I mean analog
1: years yeah I mean I was I was playing in a a band called go 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 Earhart I was playing drums and I got a phone call on our landline rotary phone and I picked it up and it was Ian McKay on the other line, <laughs> like asking, you know, asking for me by name, which was also like, whoa, what, what the fuck? Like what, <laughs> we, you, yeah. And then asking specifically for this band I was playing in, if they, if we would be interested in opening for them um, or playing with them in San Diego and in LA. Um, so, you know, things did still happen back then. It wasn't like a cell phone or an email or a text message or, or, or whatever, you know? So it was like actually like, And that's how I booked tours, too, was we used to have this device. I forget what it was called, but I think it stored phone numbers. And um, you could hack it with this chip. And by hacking it, it made the sound of um, a coin dropping into a payphone. So you would basically go and make a phone call, you know, wherever. And then it would ask you to insert X amount of... Dollars, and so you put the device up to the microphone and you push the buttons <laughs> and it like thinks it got the money and then so like we did I booked tours with those things you know oh, so I, I mean try. I don't know there's like I think that's a huge benefit to growing up in the analog age however I feel like the same kind of mindset or like mantra like, like exists within the digital age and the kids are doing something just as clever you know and I have no clue about it. <laughs> Maybe my kids will know and, <laughs> and they can teach me, but yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of a cool thing, you know?
0: Yeah, and and what about as far as the making of the music on that side of things, as far as, you know, growing up in this era of, you know, all of this analog gear and, and now with everything so digital and all of these DAWs available?
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like because of that, I still remain... Um, very hybrid le- leaning on the side of analog um you know i'm still there's still nothing better than a synthesizer or a hardware piece of hardware um you know vsts are great vsts have like come a long way and they sound fantastic but there's still nothing better than you know a synthesizer that you're physically interacting with right in front of you
0: yeah and as far as your uh I don't know your curiosity for experimental music or instrumental music. What what kind of drew you into that? And I don't know. I know you were speaking earlier about you know the first time you kind of were playing music that was outside of like those three chord punk songs and whatnot. (laughs) Did that just kind of unlock something for you? Yeah,
1: I mean there was kind of a series of events. I think of discoveries of um, mostly like you know I discovered. Because around that, around the mid '90s, and this is probably bands that you know only people of the era are going to know about, are you know, and labels. But like you know, the Chicago scene was really huge, um, and and I discovered that I think mostly because that first tour that I did in spring break when we went out to uh, Michigan and back, I uh, played this house show in a town called Kalamazoo, Michigan, and we played with this other band called Constantine Constantine Sencati. And they also played the um Michigan Fest. And anyways, we hit it off really, really well. Um, the guitar player, his name was Christopher, and he ended up moving out to San Diego with his other friend from Michigan, Jimmy Laner. And um, you know, ultimately, uh, we ended up forming the band Tristeza. Um, and from them, I feel like from them and just from the scene in general, I think that I started to discover more kind of Midwest, Chicago instrumental, mm. kind of, for lack of a better word, post-rock instrumental music. Bands like Tortoise and June of 44 and um, labels like Quarterstick and Touch and Go and Thrill Jockey, um, you know, Rodan. Um, yeah. You know, just things like that. Um, Gastro del Sol, Flying Saucer Attack. Uh, kind of a lot of like you know in my mind i didn't i didn't really put an age to these to these bands but they were probably in their 20s or something like that you know i don't know like i was a teenager still but um but they just seemed like so old and so advanced and like they were mm. making music that was just like cool and interesting and smart and and um you know at the same time we were also discovering i started to get into like british and european electronic music like portishead and and like Tricky and um uh the more music label um uh Fat Cat and uh those are the bands like Rony Size and and like Hooverphonic and and kind of like you know cl- kind of these bands that were kind of maybe they were on like 120 minutes not 120 minutes obviously because I was rock but just like they were on something that was like that maybe that like yeah. they kind of like had a little bit like broader mainstream or like commercial success a little bit. Like they just like kind of got their big toe in it maybe. Um, and I started to kind of get into all that kind of stuff and also Apex Twin, um, you know, Fotech, um, Pusher, stuff like that. And I think that kind of started to inform like an instrumental like leaning in my mind and melodic and a focus on melodics. And so that kind of that was that era. And at the same time, I was playing at the same time I started um, to discover Red House Painters and Nick Drake. Um, And from that I was a guitar player from that. I kind of like Christopher and I, we started to really get into that and that, and that like made us experiment with instrumental um, with, um, because Christopher and I went to a hardcore band called Crimson Curse. That was like the first project that we did. And it was a straight up like, you know, San Diego hardcore band, um, with, with a vocalist on that with just, yeah, with the vocalist, his name was Justin Pearson. Um, Kind of legendary, I guess, in the San Diego hardcore scene from The Locust and runs the label 3-1-G yeah. and
0: retox. and The Tristeza stuff was pretty instrumental-based, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so Tristeza turned up
1: because we started to get into this mellower music with alternate tunings um, and intricate guitar playing, so we kind of started that, um, kind of more arpeggiated guitars, clean, um, really kind of melodic and pretty. um, And the idea actually was that Christopher and I were gonna sing um, and then, I'll I'll be nice about this part, but um, basically (laughs) when it came time to it, like neither of us really appreciated or thought that either of us could really sing, um, (laughs) like in a a, a long, and I'm I'm being nice on the other end. It was was a little more scarring to me, but at any rate. um, Yeah, basically like that, so that kind of like our first show came, um, we were playing with some friends called Joan of Arc, um, from Chicago and we played in our living room in the, and, and, in, in our, in our house and, uh, first show came and we didn't have vocals. So we we're like, fuck it, let's just do an instrumental. Um, and then from then on we were instrumental. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then throughout that too, I, I did start to also discover when i was playing in go, go go Earhart, i think that was like what really kind of was like the most eye opening musical kind of um exposure that i've that i received from these kind of older guys who were deep record collectors deep into just you know the the people that i was around for the, for the most part i don't want to say that they were snotty or like or snobby i mean or like too cool for school but to an extent they were um, and the music that we listened to kind of represented that like what's cool what's this yeah. and like what's like you know that kind of thing and we were young when we were like 18, 19 yes. just, <laughs> you know and our band was good and we thought we were the shit you know all that stuff and it was just it was dumb and um, but I met these other guys called Go 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 Earhart and they the singer I think he was probably like 10 years older than me um bass player was like eight years older I don't know they were older they were just older and they were and every and I started playing drums for them and every practice was just a rehearsal like all I mean every rehearsal was just a recording a recording session so he had an eight track recorder in his living room and he just would come in and we would just literally jam and and that and those became records um and songs with no overdubs no anything I think he went back and maybe put vocals over like the 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 stuff and that was it um, but at any rate, afterwards, I would always hang around and you know, he'd play me all these records. And I want to say, I want to say that's when I discovered Brian Eno, but I feel like that was before. But I, I do feel like that, that was definitely when I heard like John Lennon's first solo record, like Plastic Ono Band. And so that's like beyond the Beatles. Obviously, we all grew up on the Beatles, but to like dig into. I think to dig into John Lennon's solo, early solo career, you know, beyond Imagine, for example, and then obviously Paul McCartney is Paul McCartney, so everybody knows, you know, that. So then I really think to dig into like the, and, you know, the really amazing records that John Lennon was making um, as a trio with Ringo, um, Phil Spector producing, you know I mean? It's just like these, these records were like beautiful and they're still some of my favorite records. Um, but just like discovering you know, or even like the Stooges in a in a more like impressionistic way. Um, right. You know, discovering bands that I would heard of. I knew like I knew the Stooges. I knew the this. I knew the that. But I didn't know the deep cuts. I didn't like go in and like you know listen to. I mean, going back to the Beatles, like listen to the baseline on you know Baby I'm a Rich Man or something like that. Like and really like tune in on that and be stoned or whatever and just be like holy shit. Like that's yeah. you know. <laughs> so I feel like that's when. I really started to, like, you know, my taste got vast and wide and, and started to
0: really kind of, like, get into other things. Yeah, you started to, like, really seek out and gravitate towards yeah. things that were, like, different and outside of what you were aware of then. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. I I feel like that was my my 10, ten years ago or so. I moved up to Portland and just got exposed to uh, – just started hanging around with different people and started listening to all this indie rock music that I hadn't really been exposed to except like maybe on a surface level and yeah it was it was interesting kind of going back and listening to even the Tristeza stuff because I feel like that all kind of like lives in this world of explosions yeah. in the sky which is a band that right. i came to like a little bit later and is like such a great band they, and yeah
1: you know, they like, came later too
0: yeah and like Appleseed um, cast i guess started
1: yeah, uh, yeah right we around all, the time we were, we were all yeah we were all that all goes back to um tiger style days and that was a whole that was a whole nother era of time but but for me too like a lot of actually going back back a lot of pacific northwest bands hardcore bands and just like were super influential to me. Like I was around when Unwound was, you know, playing um, and touring in San Diego all the time, and Carp and Godhead Silo and and um, Melvin's and you know all of that, all of that stuff. And so I know, like, just the going somewhere else and just discovering different things in your local scene,
0: and you know, like the K Records label, Kill Rock yeah, Stars, all that stuff. You know, for so. sure. And also just like getting to understand where that music was made, you know, it makes a lot of sense when you move up to the Pacific Northwest and realize like why the why all this dark grunge music was made or like the the you know <laughs> yeah. the heavy <clears throat> black metal stuff and whatnot. It just uh, it starts to make sense after you've spent like 30 days in the gray. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally, totally. Totally. Do you feel like uh when you started playing drums like consistently in go go where it was that like pretty foundational for your knowledge you know instrumentally do you feel like that was a pretty big moment for you I mean I think it was I think it just gave me the confidence
1: you know cuz I had already had already played you know obviously I started I was playing drums um I was involved in drums since 8th grade um I had a drum set um and I just I played drums in a handful of bands, um, but they were like punk bands, just so you know, like, you know, like that kind of that kind of thing or whatever. But definitely like starting to get into bands like Can and Noi and um, Brian Eno. Um, you know, drummers like Phil Collins because Phil Collins played drums on Brian Eno's um, records, and he was sick. Um, He's my favorite. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Phil Collins is honestly like. I, I he's one of my all time. He's just he's incredible to we me. We can be friends now, um, Jimmy. Yeah. <laughs> um, seriously, like I have a I have an obs- I, yeah I I'm I'm above and beyond with Phil Collins. I, I love him. Um, Same. But um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, but the going back, yeah, like nobody knows, um, you know that he was the drummer for Brian Eno, and he was like, you know, just a badass. Um, but just so I was just getting into all these rhythms and also i was really into tribe called quest and um kind of like that era of hip-hop um and those beats were sick and they were all samples you know they were samples from other drummers and just like so you know from that i started to unveil like more kraut rock and more like um psych rock and just like more beats um that i was interested in mixing with um and also drum and bass like like Roni Size and Fotec, um, like had the, like, you know, like the whole, like kind of acid, like like that whole, like kind of like British electronic scene, um, that had that beat, you know, it was like, everybody used that beat and it was always, it was fine. It was, <laughs> um, but I was into that beat. And, and so I, the very first song when we went on, on orchestrated rise of fall is like a total ode to like trying to like rip off, um, like that, like, like Roni Size, or fo- you know, like that style of drumming, um, and that style of rhythm. But also, that's an important thing to note was because I recorded that record, "Orchestrated Rise to Fall," with the singer for Go 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 Earhart on the same system that we, rec- that we rehearsed on, because. That's where i got my roads my roads was in his living room and after practices i would sit there and noodle on it and he would be recording me and that essentially turned into my first record um so that was my first exposure to the roads and you know obviously it's an instrument that i use still to this day and um and then yeah the drumming that i was doing um in go 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 was kind of just getting me mo- you know building more confidence i was already fine on um, and, and to be honest, that built my confidence on keyboards, too, because I didn't really play keyboards or piano live. I was always a guitar player. Um, so, I mean, I
0: think that, that 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 time in Go, Go, Go is really, really huge for me. Yeah, and did you feel like that kind of... Uh, you captured, like, this improvisational spirit on that record, too, as far as uh, the way that that first record was recorded?
1: Yeah, and, I mean, I found I was improvising... Um, more so with sound. And I was kind of discovering, and the funny thing was though, is that that Rhodes had, I think four broken tines. So you could only actually play, four broken keys basically. So you could only play in um, a certain key. <laughs> so I had to write songs um, around these notes and around this key. Um, so that's like my the, the first record is all in E major. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's kind of funny. Um <laughs> And it happened to be the same tuning, um, alternate tuning that I used um, in Tristezza too. So And then there were songs that I wrote for Tristeza that didn't like didn't really make the cut, and I kind of could like translate it and play it on the roads, and then that would then,
0: you know, turn into turn into that record. Was that uh that was Mike Vermillion that mm-hmm. was recording that with you? Yep. Yeah. Now I know that that's uh that's what you There's named a- that Vermilion song off of uh, one day I'll be day. on time exactly nice nice i was almost gonna i was almost gonna put that out as like a trivia question of,
1: you know, like <laughs> to see where did, out. where did it sing? yeah where did the
0: title vermilion come from how thoroughly <laughs> did this dude read the wikipedia <laughs> totally <laughs> you have a different feeling of putting out that first album leaf record than you did prior projects was there any different sort of attachment to it um i think there was a sense of pride um because i
1: had previously put out a ta- I, I i there's a there's a very first album leaf record i would say that predates that which is a only a cassette it's on cassette and it's an eight track and there's eight tracks on it. Um, and I recorded it on my four track and I know one person that has it. Um, and I can still get it. So I, I, and he gave it to me for a while and I was, I didn't have a tape player, but anyways, um, he still has it and I could probably get it and digitize it. But, um, but with that, it was like, you know, those were all, I think I pressed, I think I made like 20. There's only 20 of them and they, um, I like, you know, typewritered every all, all of them and like wrote, you know, whatever. It was just like that that whole thing. I think Christopher and um like wrote like wrote my wrote the band name on it for me because he had like that cool, you know, kind of interesting handwriting and um anyways, and so that was cool. There's kind of like but I just sold them at the shows. I had never played a show. I had never done anything. I just, you know, just they were there at the merch table for like 2 bucks or something like that. I don't know. Um so I think when I finally had made orchestrated rise to fall. Um, I think there was a pretty good sense of pride with that, of just like, wow, I made a record, you know, like, like I'm like Prince, I played everything on a, on a record <laughs> and, and it's, and here it is and there it is and you know, stuff like that. So, um, but it wasn't my main thing. Like Omleaf wasn't my main thing. Tristezza was my main jam and I knew what I could do and I knew what I was capable of. I knew I could make something on my own, but like, it wasn't my main it wasn't my main like focus, you know. So it was
0: cool. And then you know, that obviously led to other things, but <laughs> Yeah. Do you remember much about playing that first album leaf show? I
1: don't. Um, I just know there was like a bunch of friends um just kind of had these songs and and we played. I don't know. Um <laughs> it was probably I think it was at the che, it was at the Che Cafe which is like a staple San Diego venue, um, on the UCSD campus. Um, you know, small, tiny, you know, the stage is probably like five feet wide or eight feet was just small and shitty, but bands like blonde redhead and low and, you know, like peaches, you know, even like in bikini kill, like they all played there. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, I don't really re- I, it's so long ago. I don't remember like at
0: all. Did you play guitar that that show? I played Rhodes. Okay. I played the, yeah, I played the Rhodes. I might have
1: played guitar too, but I think I just played the Rhodes.
0: Is there is there any uh, thought when you're making a record about how you're going to pull it off live, or is it always just let's uh, let's ride with whatever we? It's can It's always
1: in the back of my mind, and and I do feel like it more um, like it's more of a block for me if I start to think of it that way. Um, and I've gone. I've been going through that with this new live record, or this not live record, this new album leaf record that I have, because um, I have a ch- shit ton of songs um, that I'm like. I was going to release um, early on and <clears throat> early on in the pandemic, because um, I was just tired of sitting on music, and I thought it was a good time to just kind of put stuff out. And I started. to, I don't know. I just started to get into like. I hate rules. I hate the like, like what, how you have to do something. You have to like, oh, you gotta set it all up. You gotta put a single out. You gotta do this, then you gotta like, then you gotta do this, and then you, know, just all that shit. I just got like so frustrated with, um, and I didn't want to like do any of that. And I might have put something, a couple things out, um, maybe even on SoundCloud or something like that. I don't know. Like, like I, I'm not sure what I, where I did, or or even if I did. Maybe I like dreamt that I did. But at any rate, like. I know the times that I put something out and there was no like machine or no backing behind it or, or whatever, like it I mean, in full honesty, like it definitely hurt the ego, you know, it's just like goes unnoticed. Nobody cares. Um, you know, like, Oh, what? You put something new out. Oh, Uh, you know, something like that. So, you know, it's like, I want to, I wanted to find the balance of being able to put things out and, and not like kind of, be a part of the of this machine that kind of makes the rules right right um and then ultimately i ended up falling deeper into that machine because then i was kind of locked with a publishing company i wasn't happy with um i was with a publishing company that i really loved and they were great and they've been i've been with them forever and then they sold they sold themselves so then i got like sold into like this bigger publishing company where i was just like you know one of many little guppies like in this big ocean, you know, and, and no one's familiar. Like I had fans there luckily, you know, but still like nothing like no new music, nothing more I can do. Nothing kind of like, just, just basically like underwhelming, you know, and it wasn't, it didn't feel good. And I just wanted to get out of it and I wanted to go back to work with people that I, um, you know, the, the, basically like who kind of like started it for me. Um, and so I didn't want to put these songs out because then they would fall under this publishing company. So I had to like wait because then I started negotiating with another publishing company for future. And so I had to wait. So that was done (laughs) to put out anything. And that took forever. And I, I don't know. It was just like this kind of like weird like thing where I'm just like, Oh, now I fell into like this, you know, that's like, that sucks. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) But, um, but yeah and ultimately those songs didn't come out but they're gonna come out um but but basically like going back to it like i was putting a lot of thought in how to perform them because i wanted to be able to perform them solo i wanted to be able to like do i wanted to be able to take album leaf back if that like makes sense i wanted to be able to like re, like take it back to like this was something that i started as like a solo like creative outlet that's like Fulfilling to me because I get my needs met by, you know, my musical needs, my creative needs met by making songs and performing those songs. And I presented it as a band for so long and, Mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, a lot of like we and we're, oh, we're super happy to be or you know just like that that kind of stuff, you know, like um, rather than I, I guess, you know. Um, and so people saw that and people, you know, and I used a lot of the same players, like I had the same violinist for almost 15 years. And so he was like a familiar face, a staple in the band, you know? And, you know, like for some reason, like it, w- it would feel weird sometimes when I'd read like, oh, I saw you guys, or I love I love you guys. I saw you back in this, or I listened to their music, you know, just whatever. Like all of these kinds of things were just like, wasn't like, I, I don't know, maybe that sounds a little crazy to say, but like, well, the focus wasn't on the fact that like this was my like kind of brainchild and my like you know what I do, and like i'm I'm the one that's like making what you're listening to, but when you come like I can't do it all by myself, so I need people to play it um but you know, um, and then I started making records like as a band, and that was more fulfilling too to me because you know, it was more creative after making records by myself for so long, it was like fun to do something with other people. But then that gets like crazy with logistics and the, like, you know, like the album leaf is my livelihood and it's how I've made a living for 20 years. And I have a family and I have kids and I have a house and, you know, all of these things. It's like, And I don't make that much money from touring or playing shows. And I'm lucky that I don't have to do that. But, you know, then it kind of breaks into like, you know, you start to kind of like pay people out and um, I don't know, getting yes. get, get some dirt. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, so I mean, I wanted to make these songs, you know, and now like my goal is to like these shows I'm doing as a duo and I wanted to see what I can accomplish as a duo, as, as a two piece. Um, and I feel like myself sonically, I can create a lot um, musically. Um, but the addition of drums, I feel like just kind of brings a live element to a show. So I feel like, I think the happiest I've been was as a trio. I felt like that, like really like kind of, because I just had that extra person that's able to kind of like float and do different things. Cause I'm really tied down to like triggering everything you're hearing, (laughs) (laughs) playing everything you're hearing, you know, and like doing a million things at once and thinking about the next cue and the next song. And then when do I have to hit this button and and when do I have to set this loop and uh, all of these things, you know, it's because I'm trying to perform all this stuff. Um, and so I wanted to really like strip that all back and almost like do like a, like almost like a DJ hybrid set, you know, where it's like, I'm playing some, but I'm really focusing more on your experience and I'm focusing more on what Mm. you're hearing. And then I kind of quickly realized like, that's boring for someone to come and see I'm not a dance party you know so it's like no matter what I can't do that you
0: know (laughs) (laughs) the the visual elements uh seem like they've always been pretty important to you do you think that that was uh partially because the music was instrumental and you wanted to give the the attendees like something else to attach themselves to
1: yeah. I, I mean, absolutely. Like through the years I've done, I've done, I've said, you know, like I, I don't think that we're an exciting band to watch. Um, I think I don't necessarily think if you took away all the bells and whistles like, and watched us, you would be like, Oh my God, there's such a good band. Like there's such a good, like, like sure. Like the music might be good. We might be tight. We might be all this, but I just don't think it's particularly exciting to watch people sitting down, you know, or whatever, you know, <clears throat> some something like that. Um, if you're a fan, I think that you appreciate like sonically what you're hearing. Um, and if you like the records, then you're going to appreciate sonically what you're hearing. Um, and you'll appreciate obviously seeing somebody play, you know, um, you know, low, for example, they're not a very exciting show, but they're like the, one of the most pristine, perfect bands I've ever seen live. Um, and they've added things elements little elements um, just to kind of elevate like what they don't present in stage presence you know yeah um, and their shows fantastic for me though like I've always thought I don't know like take take the Doug fur for example um, being from Portland um, you know you probably see I don't know let's say 10 15 maybe 20 shows if you're an avid music you know fan going out to shows a year at this same place, you know, nine times out of 10, you know, chances are, it's just going to be a different set of people on stage set up in the same way, or maybe a little different, um, in the same spot the same place you go, you get the same drink, you do the same thing, you know, whatever, like all the same, 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 same. And I like to bring something in that like, just kind of like, you know, fucks with that and disrupts that. like you know, sense of just like same you know and then going further on that like i've 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 had visuals since the early 2000s and so i felt like i i had done that like i'd done like the massive like you know entire back wall covered. We're flooded in visuals. It's like this whole thing. And like, you know, people appreciated it. Of course they do. Um, but I wanted to change that. So then I started to add like lights and and then I couldn't really afford to bring out a professional, um, another person on tour to run lighting. So then I got into discovering like kind of just working with lighting designers and having them design something that then I can trigger. So, you know, it basically communicates with my system, and I'm able to trigger it all, and so I just keep expanding on that idea. Um, and you know, I'm triggering the visuals, I'm triggering the lights, I'm triggering you know all of these things. Um, and then now, yeah, like I've I've done visuals for so long that I've wanted to kind of focus on lights for a little bit, and just lighting and kind of bringing like something that's cool in that sense. And that's also a little nerve wracking to me too, because it's like I played I played with knowing that something else exists to take someone's attention from it from me you know like watching me. oh man yeah um (laughs) creating distractions (laughs) yeah like you have a distraction (laughs) you don't have to just watch me play piano um so yeah and then taking the visuals away was just kind of like oh now I'm kind of taking the story away I'm kind of taking the storytelling away um so yeah it's just kind of like it's it took a while to kind of the first like non-visual tour I did was in Europe um, for In a Safe Place and it it was basically like a selection of like I think there was like 25 like 6 foot or 4 foot um, LED lighting fixtures um, that were fed a visual feed Um, so there was a projection that they were playing but it was a very low res projection you couldn't tell if it was a you know it's not like there's a plane flying by and you can tell in the the thing it's just like it was just kind of like fed different colors and, and um, different cues that way and it was cool um, and then this new design I'm really 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 psyched on um, and it's just kind of like a bunch of uh, LED squares multi sizes um, and then we just kind of like lay them out in like an array and just you know again just kind of present a show and it's and it's with us and it's being triggered you know from me um, there's only three of us on this tour you know
0: it's kind of nice <laughs> yeah Speaking of in a safe place, you know, we got to, we got to talk about in a safe place. Right. (laughs) (laughs) The fans would be very disappointed if we, if we don't talk about this at all, but I guess to, to get into that, how important was it for you to get the opportunity to go out on the road with Sigour Rose, And what did you learn from getting to spend time with them, see them perform every night? And how much did that influence the way that you made in a safe place? So when I first toured with Sigur it was in two thousand and one.
1: Um, I had never heard of them. Uh, I was just like kind of asked to do this tour um, with an Icelandic band, and I saw the rooms that they were playing, like the venues, the theaters, and I was just like, "Oh, who is it?" Like this what's going on here? Like, that's who I, that's where I want to be, or I don't know, whatever, you know, and YouTube did exist then. So I found a video, or maybe it wasn't YouTube maybe, but it was just like the internet existed. And I was able to find this video of them playing at the Icelandic opera house. um, And like the live recordings of that have come out since, but, um, and I was just blown away. I was just like, holy shit. um, This is really, really good. Um, So I took the tour and then obviously uh, that first tour, first show was in Detroit. um, And it was just the four of them on tour, uh, or it's four of them playing. They had a you know big crew with them, but um, but at any rate, like yeah, we met, we bonded, we we hit it off quickly. It was like they were really really sweet people. Um, it was really fun. We did that tour, you know, and that was kind of it. Started a new friendship, et cetera um they came back in 2002 again to the states and i met up with them when they played san diego and then i rode up with them to like seattle and flew home and and just kind of like kicked it with them on the bus and and um and traveled with them they were friends and then in 2003 they asked me to play they tour with them in europe um and offered to you know i had to do it solo because of financial reasons i couldn't fly out a band um and transportation just wasn't going to happen so You know, they, they graciously offered me a spot on their bus and I flew out and rented a Rhodes and just like did that tour solo. Um, and those are the beginnings of, um, songs from in a safe place that I was playing. And then throughout that tour, because I was solo, um, you know, Keratin started to come out and play with me a little bit. And Maria from Amina, who was their their string section started to come out and play with me. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, Ori as well. So I was just kind of like playing as a four piece, um. I'd start the show by myself and then they'd come out and kind of join and, and end it like that. And then in the state side of that tour, um, I had a band. So I changed the setup a bit and we'll start, you know, just kind of like more songs that were gonna be on in a safe place. Um, and then at the end of that tour, they were like, you should come out to Iceland and record. And I was like, yeah, that'd be great, incredible. Like I don't see a world in which that would ever happen. Like <laughs> me and I, what are you talking about? This just seems like, you know. <laughs> And then sure enough, yeah, I mean, like my manager like made it happen um, and, you know, made, like just did all the logistical things, which is just basically telling me all you have to do is buy a f- flight and just go and uh, make, make their record. <laughs> um, and I was on Tiger Style, so they supported it. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so I just went out and I just like, I was in their studio. I wasn't with them, you know, I was just in their studio um, and recording with their house engineer, um, Biggie, um, his name's Biggie. John Bergerson, which is very similar to Yonzi so I think there's a lot of confusion there that they think that you know Yonzi and I in a a studio together it wasn't it was Biggie um, and I and yeah and then we made the record and like yeah I mean Ori would like come and check in and just be like hey what's going on and I'd be like oh you want to play drums and he'd just like hop on and play drums on a couple things and then you know Kyrton was kind of the same I was staying with him um, while I was recording so he would come into the studio and it was their studio so they would just you know they just came in and and I, didn't get, and I went out the first time and I didn't get anything done. I didn't get the whole record done, so I went home. So I was doing a process of basically like writing songs, writing half of it um, in, in San Diego, and then refinishing it in an Iceland. Um, yeah. So that was kind of like what I did for like half of that record. But yeah, I mean, that was the first time that I myself was away in a studio like that in a faraway place, in a you know, unfamiliar place, in a magical place. Um, being around you know, the Reykjavik is a insanely creative town. Um you know, Icelandic people are insanely like they're, you know, I think it's like ninety percent artists of some sort, you know, something like that. Um and it was just in a really creative place and a really kind of inspiring place to be because of that. Um and I get it, get it. I mean yeah, it directly informed, you know, with the record that I created, but you know they were my songs that um were able to be embellished and kind of like added to from you know carrie Ori and maria and the song over the pond was actually a collaboration um that i had sent yonzi after the 2001 tour or the 2003 tour i can't remember i think it was 2000 anyways it was a long time ago like it was like something that was like predated anything it was just like i sent him that that Wurlitzer line and um and bass line and he had worked on it and pulled out the tapes and was just like oh yeah I worked on this and then brought it to a certain place and then we kind of just like um, made it all and put it all in place there and everybody came in and played on it and that's how Over the Pond was finished you know
0: Hey, everybody. Just wanted to take a quick minute to let you know that this episode of the podcast is sponsored by North 45 pub located in the Alphabet District of Northwest Portland. They've got a killer selection of Belgian beers and an extensive liquor wall with over 200 bottles. Muscles and Fritz are on the menu. Their cheeseburger is lights out and they've always got some killer weekly specials as well. Aside from the menu items and beverages, they've got this awesome covered patio that is heated throughout the fall and winter with a bunch of big screens to watch all your favorite sports. And the best part is they have DJs playing tunes there every Tuesday night from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. and Sundays, 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. So come through North 45 Pub for some tunes and some food. Let's get back to the episode.
1: But yeah, I mean, that record was huge for me, you know definitely was like signed with sub pop and put me on the map um you know elevated me and i mean essentially kind of still has me sitting where i'm
0: where i am today you know was that uh pretty validating for you and like sub pop showed interest knowing the the history of that label
1: uh definitely i did have an in at sub pop like full disclosure my um I used to play in a band in the in the in the nineties called Strictly Ballroom, and um, that was with Jimmy Tamborello from uh, Postal Service. And the label that released that record was called Waxploitation, and the person that ran Waxploitation is Tony K or Tony Kiwell, and he's at Sub Pop. So I was like, I knew him before, and it was kind of a way to be like, "Hey, Tony," like. Check out what I just made, and he's nice. like, "Oh, wow, this is
0: cool." You know, he was at sub pop, so it was that was I had, a, I had a, you know, I had a
1: shoe in, I guess.
0: Yeah, and I don't know. That seemed like around the time that they started experimenting with some different styles of music, which is sweet. Yeah, that was when like Shins and Iron and Wine and like the
1: whole like all of that stuff was all happening. CSS and all kinds of things. But I mean, the thing about the sub pop, which is also why I'm no longer on the label, is because that whole label needs to be in complete across the board unison on a release and on a record. So somebody in that camp that wasn't an Albany fan. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what was it like for you when uh you know you're you're specifically from that record, a lot of those tunes started showing up in the in the O C and
1: Yeah. That was like that was where I mean I remember that first publishing check I got and I was just like whoa like I <laughs> I, I've never seen like, I've never seen a check for $2,000, like, oh my gosh, what am I going to, you know, and I was paying, I mean, back then, that's also another like, you know, thing I'm thankful of was the time I came up in, I I was paying like $80 a month in rent, you know, it was just like $2,000 is a lot, like that's, 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 I'm going to move out, I'm going to move into my own, like, you know, and it was just, yeah, I mean, I remember like, um, that was like going back to like MTV real world you know, Road Rules, all of their like, you know, I don't know, Teen Mom and like all of their shows were using, um, Album Leaf stuff and all that airtime was paying me. And I was just like, wow, this is, this is crazy. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, I mean, that whole record was used on the OC, um, in a safe place, like every single song. And then it was put on the soundtrack for it and, you know, all kinds of, it was, it was cool. It was really cool. I'm not a fan of the OC, the show. I mean, full disclosure, I didn't watch it or anything like that. Um, it's I fine, did, Jimmy. Mean? Yeah. I, I heard these songs in real time.
0: I, you know what was yeah. cool though about the, the OC is like, they really did like break a lot of indie mm-hmm. bands and bring them into the mainstream. And then they went Death, the extra Band, yeah, modest mouse. all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. And then they went like the extra step of playing into the mix CD era and like putting right. those mix CDs kind of out like the official OC one. So, you must've just been getting like all kinds of attention from people that wouldn't have normally stumbled across your music.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That and the Hummer commercial <laughs> for Vermillion. <laughs> 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 that was kind of my first, that was like my first payday was that, was that thing. And what I did with that though, I mean, cause that was after in a safe place came out, but what I did with that was bought a van and bought a trailer and with that money and was able to just like, be a fully functioning kind of business of, you know, so it was kind of like, you know, Hummer gave me an investment and, and I used it wisely, that kind of thing. You yeah.
0: Know. I'm curious to, uh, I know that you've spent, uh, you know, the last years working on a lot of, uh, film stuff and scoring and, and composing for that style of art. So did, uh, did that come pretty naturally to you? with all the music you've been making over the years and was it a a shift for you to to kind of create art for another piece of art that already existed
1: I mean it was definitely both because I, I like like as you as you said like I had a lot of success in the licensing realm of just my existing music being used for you know tv shows and 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 whatnot um and Obviously, I made instrumental music. Obviously, I made kind of like atmospheric music, and and you know just music that lent itself well to you know to support moments in a show or a film. Um, and I was through through the years getting a lot of like random uh, requests to use. Hey, I used your song in a in a, in a in a in a in 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 this film or in this documentary for this. And then you know there was one that came along that used a lot of my music and the film was really powerful and it was Tori's Distraction and I was just like, well, how about I just score this film for you? And the filmmaker, luckily, she was like on board with it and 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 let me go for it. And with that, I was doing more, I was more in the like sound alike world, like, okay, this is the cue that's going on. It was a clap your hands song, like a oh, clap your hands say yeah song. Okay, I'm gonna make my own version of that or the, uh, you know, Greg, uh, what was his name? Greg Williams or something like that. I forget what his name is greg ellis anyways um this like you know ambient or like or like cool really cool musician from the the you know northeast um and like made my version of that you know stuff like that um and then i didn't i didn't feel like i really started to like kind of fine-tune and find my voice um until my voice and scoring at least um, first like this for my wife, really, because she's a filmmaker, um, she's a documentary filmmaker, and she gave me, um, brought me in on her film and didn't use temp and just used whatever I created. So that was kind of like the early times when I was able to really just like do something from scratch for a film. And then, yes, the uh, continuing to work with her and the continuing to work with the filmmakers, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead that we just did um, our fourth film together, they have definitely... You know, I've definitely gotten just more comfortable and approach a film as a score as opposed to like, what's the temp doing? I'm gonna match that. You know, I did that really, really early on, and I never want to do that, and I never think that that way. You know, so, so yeah, I was able to kind of like fine tune my craft, like, you know, with a bunch of very gracious or handful of gracious filmmakers to give me to give me creative freedom.
0: Yeah, and do you uh, feel like that style of work has? changed your approach at all when you're writing album leaf music now?
1: You know, I'm not sure. I think it's if anything it's it's just that I learn tricks and I'll apply those tricks ac- across um you know, music that I'm making. So there's very little like beats or drum programming for example like in my scores um and my songs rely kind of heavily on beats and programming um on album leaf on the album leaf side. So yeah, I mean, it's just kind of like I, I learned something new, and it's just like I well, whatever I'm into at the moment, and I'll and I'll apply that to, to, to those scores, I guess, or to, or to the album of songs I'm writing.
0: For sure. All right, man. Well, I know I gotta I gotta let you go. You gotta get things wrapped <laughs> up here, but I thought we would uh, we could close out on uh, what were your thoughts on. Doing this new version of the One Day record that came out in 2021, you know, kind of revisiting these songs 20 years later and reimagining them in some ways.
1: Yeah, I mean, so a handful of the songs I've have been playing, um, you know, over the last 20 years, and that record was made. Um, it was the first record that I kind of recorded, um, aside from In and Off My Room, it was the first record that I kind of recorded um, um, myself. So there was a lot of like improv takes of my piano parts and Rhodes playings and and um, especially just like learning how to program using Fruity Loops for drum programming and then going back and like nice. re-tracking myself, playing drums um, over the things that I tracked to Fruity you know, something like that. So to an extent there was a lot of improv involved in that record and following that, playing it all the time, I then started to fall into playing actual parts an actual, you know, repetitive things like a song. So there was that part of it where I was able to kind of go back and like focus in on on performing the song as I would perform it um, over the past twenty years or so. And then and then yeah, then just like stepping it up in like the production game of things and new tricks, like as I was just saying, like new things that I've learned, um, and also working with my you know longtime collaborator James McAllister, um, whose ear and sense of taste and sense of like um fidelity and just like i don't know like the just the the, where his ear goes and the things that he's drawn to and the sounds that he's into um and his production style um just really you know match well with with what i'm into and we work really well together and really easily together and we did it all remotely um yeah i mean it was great to go back and kind of like give the songs a facelift, um, put some of them in new ideas, even though like, and I still wanted to keep that magic of like improv and magic of kind of surprise that like I had making that record. But yeah, I mean, I just wanted to expand it sonically and, and, you know, I didn't want to go back and fix mistakes or fix different things or like things that I feel like I did wrong. Um, But I just wanted to kind of like, just make it again, I guess, you know, and it was, we did it in like three weeks, so <laughs> <laughs> very cool. <laughs> it's pretty it's pretty rad, I guess. But but yeah, I'm really psyched on it. I'm really proud of it. Um I think it's a good representation of like sonically what's to come and like kind of like more directions that I'm moving in and you know, I don't know, things like that.
0: Right on, man. Well, I wanna play it out with uh play the episode out with the the rework of MP. Off of that record. I nice. love that one. And uh, I'm super stoked. I'll be there on Sunday to see you in, in, awesome. here in Portland. I know this won't be out yet, but uh, people should uh, keep up with what you're doing. I'll put all the links in the episode notes. So... Uh, so folks can keep up with you, Jimmy. Appreciate you uh, doing this with me, and uh, yeah. I feel like I could talk with you for another couple hours. So maybe we'll get to link up and do it again sometime. Uh, and I could easily do that too. I
1: talk, I talk for a long time. So I, I, I just, I'm, I apologize. Had I known that it was going to be longer, I would have like put the, put aside the time. You're so. good, man. That just means we get to hopefully do it again. I sometime. enjoy this.
0: I enjoy this stuff. So cool. You know. We'll just have to. We'll just have to pick it up again sometime, and uh, yeah. we end every episode of the podcast with the guest saying the tagline for the show which is it's a program so if we could get the album leaf it's a program we can properly sail this thing out all right the album leaf it's a program (laughs) you nailed it everybody uh we're (laughs) playing it out with the mp off of that uh one day xx album which is available on all the streaming services and all the links for the album leaf will be in the episode notes so you can keep up and that is the jelly jams and we will catch you on the flip side portland los angeles wherever you are listening from give a big shout out to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Can't say thank you enough to DistroKid for their support of this thing and make sure you go into the episode notes and find that DistroKid link to receive 30% off your first year of membership with DistroKid, making their already affordable prices even cheaper for you. So make sure you take advantage of that and the link is also in uh, the link in my Instagram bio on the link tree. So you can find it there as well. Big thanks to Distro Kid. Stay up, stay tuned.